You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Stephen Kotler is the author of the William L. Crawford IAFA Fantasy Award-winning novel The Quickest Angle for Flight and the memoir West of Jesus. His new book is A Small Furry Prayer. Thank you for joining me, Stephen. Thank you for having me. Well, Stephen, it's been an exciting four years for you, hasn't it? (laughs) A little bit has happened, yes, (laughs) since we last spoke. Well, uh, what interests me... uh, is let's talk about your your where you start in this novel, both as a writer and a, as a human being, because you're in L.A., you're living in Los Feliz, in Griffith Park. And I, one of the things I like about the way you write is you have this kind of interesting digressive style. So you tell us some... Inter- I never knew that uh, Griffith Park was uh, donated by Griffith W. Griffith. <laughs> Appropriately named. Yes. I know. Well, well tell us ab- about... Um, how you, how you met your wife to be, and why you moved in, and where you moved in, and where you were living. Um, I well, I met my wife to be, believe it or not, because she was the first person uh, outside of a close group of friends to read West Jesus, my last book. She blurbed it, um, and I sent it to her, and uh, through a friend of a friend, basically, mm-hmm. is, is how the book got to her. And uh, it was almost it was random. She gets a lot of those books, and reads very few of them and blurbs even fewer but some for whatever reason she actually opened mine which is rare um <laughs> and you know liked it and I of course was like she was the very first person to like the book outside <laughs> the people who are supposed to like the book you know the ones I pay to like the book and uh so you know I of course was thrilled I was like oh my god it might work <laughs> and uh, you know demanded that she allow me to take her out to dinner so mm-hmm. I could hear her tell me more about me of course <laughs> <laughs> and what a good writer I was. Um, and uh, and that was kind of how we met. And, y- you know, we just kind of had the, one, one of those just amazing kind of courtships. We fell in love almost immediately, I think, on our, the very first time we sat at that, that dinner. I think she said the secret to relationships, she felt it's putting your worst foot forward. She doesn't believe in false advertising. And I think that was it. <laughs> like, from that moment on, I think we, I think we were hooked. Now, you're living in a rather small house in, in Los Feliz. Well, what happened, uh, what, what led me into Small Furry Prayer is I had one dog at the time, and Joy was a dog rescuer, and I knew almost nothing about dog rescue uh, at the time I met Joy. I actually, the man who introduced us uh, pulled me aside, actually, the night uh, he did, and uh, or the, the night after I met her the first time, because I was spinning, and I, and, I, and I called him, and I was like, okay, i, I got to sit down with you and, and hear about Joy, and... We sat down and he said, she's uh, known her a long time. Said, she's an amazing woman. She's a great person, but she's crazy. And I said, well, crazy how? And he said, dog rescue. It's not a cause. It's a cult. <laughs> and, you know, I had been around a lot of animal people over the years as a journalist. I'd kind of gone pretty far out of my way to spend time with, you know, people who spent time with animals. But it was usually like primatologists in the rainforest or herpetologists in the Everglades. It was the scientists on that end. Mm-hmm. I knew nothing about the rescue side of the equation. Um, I wasn't really, I mean, I kind of knew Peter Singer's ideas, but I wasn't really familiar with his work, the kind of the philosophical bent that underlined some of the rescue movement. 
Um, but, you know, when Joe kind of gave me this warning, he wasn't actually joking. He was kind of serious. And I was like, well, I really like this woman, so I'm going to I'm gonna poke it around and, you know, try to figure out what is dog rescue as I was getting to know her. And, uh, you know, I quickly learned a, a number of startling things. Um, you know, first of all, dog rescue is this thing, or animal rescue in general, that has a very hippie-ish pedigree in people's minds. And very quickly, early on, I met a guy named Steve Albin who runs the Military Pets Foster Project. And... Steve basically finds homes for soldiers' pets when they go to fight wars, which used to be a big problem. We used to have to kill our soldiers' pets before we sent them off to war. It was just an awful thing to do. Um, so he solved that problem, but he also got inspired to solve this problem by George Bush's post-9-11 speech, which is not your you know, standard hippie pedigree <laughs> at all. Um, and then I started digging deeper, and I found out the numbers on rescue are pretty astounding, and mm -hmm. most people don't know them. There are roughly 78 million dogs in America. 25% of them have been rescued from shelters. Roughly 20 million Americans have participated in an animal rescue on one level or another. And the really kind of startling number is all told Americans spend $2.5 billion a year on animal sheltering and advocacy. And that doesn't include smaller shelters. There are like 14,000 smaller shelters. Over 150 of them have budgets of over a million dollars. There's a lot going on here. Mm -hmm. This is a big, big, big movement that had kind of gone on like under my nose and I'd never really noticed. But the thing I noticed after kind of being around Joy is as a journalist, again, I've spent my career looking for really passionate, devoted people who have carved out really interesting niches in little corners of the world. And that's really... And I don't know if I've specialized in anything, but I've done a quite a bit of that kind of work where I've sought those people out and wanted to kind of crawl around in their lives for a while, and they've been nice enough to let me. And uh, But with Rescue Joy, would wake up in the morning, and she would spend five hours answering emails, no pay, no nothing, two to 400 emails a day from other rescuers. And then she had her seven dogs, all of whom were sick and had problems, and she had to nurse those dogs back to health. And there were always new dogs rotating in and out of that pack. Um, and... You know, then there was just like phone calls and it would shoot 10 hours a day, eight hours a day, 10 hours a day, every day she was putting into this, you know, this cause. And it wasn't just her. It was everybody I met in the cause. And it was, you know, mm -hmm. it was amazing and really, you know, startling to me. But as you know, I'm kind of a science geek. And one of the things I very quickly discovered also is no one knows why. We spend $2.5 billion a year on animal sheltering advocacy and nobody knows why. Altruism has been a puzzle to science that goes kind of all the way back, you know, to sure. times of recorded history. And Plato argued about it, Aristotle argued about it, the Greeks, and all the way up. And, you know, the kind of current reigning theory uh, is, you know, post-Richard Dawkins' selfish gene is we help those who help us pass along our genes. And, you know, altruism really is an altruism. It's selfishness in disguise. And there are arguments about that. And some people believe it, some people don't. And E.O. Wilson is putting forth group selection and as another idea, but we won't even go there, but cross-species altruism, which is helping an animal, well, nothing I do for an animal is going to help me pass along my genes. So nobody can explain it. There are a couple of like what they call workaround theories mm -hmm. that kind of try to brush it under the rug, um, but they're only viable if, you know, you realize that this is, you know, if, if it was a couple of hippies saving, you know, dogs, well, okay, fine, maybe we these workaround, but it's, you know, 20 million Americans, $2.5 billion. This is a big question. And I was obsessed with this question. You know, I, for me, it doesn't take me much to follow an idea right off the edge of the world. And here was an idea I was like, wow, this is really interesting. And right at that exact moment, 
as all this was going on, I had moved in with Joy and uh, given up an amazing apartment that I loved. And I moved in with Joy into this tiny little house because we wanted to combine our packs and combine our lives. And they sold our house out from under us. Uh, the housing, uh, the housing market had started to crash, and our landlords had a bunch of properties, and they decided ours was the one that they were going to sell. And we mentioned lawyers, and they mentioned the SPCA, and that was the end of that. There's a le there's a law in LA, the zoning law, say three is the legal limit for dogs, and we had eight, so there was no no protection. But the bad news is the housing market had just crashed, and rental rates were at 96 percent, and nobody was going to rent us another place to live in Los Angeles that we could even begin to think about affording with eight dogs. Mm -hmm. And you can't really like, I mean, you can hide a couple of them maybe, but I don't like to live that way anyways. I feel no, it's, you know, no. a little dishonest. Um, and it didn't, it would make me uncomfortable. Um, so it was, you know, what the hell should we do? And, you know, we did what, you know, I think most sane, normal people would do under the circumstances. We got drunk. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we made a really crazy, long, bizarro list of things we wanted in a place to live. I mean, long and bizarre, like, you know, they stretched from like a clawfoot bathtub and a wraparound front porch to scientists and artists in the immediate area to surfing and skiing and rock climbing and mountain biking <laughs> with a half hour of the front door to good zoning laws to a greenhouse, whatever. It was a silly drunken list. And we woke up the next morning and looked at the list and went, well, if this is going to be our guidance, the only state in, you know, America that may fit our desires is New Mexico. And I had spent three months in Santa Fe. 20 years earlier, Joy had never been to New Mexico, but I jumped in my car and, you know, off we went and I pretty much bought a house and we had three weeks to get out and it was panic time and I had a little bit of money saved and I, I bought a house about 30 seconds after I first saw it. It had, really? the, it had 39 of the 40 things on our list. Um, and, what did uh, it lack? It lacked a, uh, a guest house slash office for me, but it was an old goat farm. So I turned what was the goat shack, goat where they shack. into right, right into right. my office, and then and that was always like I was excited about that because I'd always wanted to build a house with my hands, mm -hmm. um, and I am not Mr. Power Tool. When that a friend of mine helped me build the goat shack, and uh, when he showed up with tools, there were probably ninety of them in his truck, and I could name Rami maybe seven. <laughs> you know, I mean, literally, I'm not I'm not kidding. I didn't know how to do anything. Um, I didn't know how to frame a room. I'd never put up drywall. I'd never done anything like that, but I'd always wanted to do it. So I took my first, you know, two months while I was there and built a house, like a 550 square foot little, you know, house with a cabin, I guess. Super fun. <laughs> but, well, now uh, I want to talk to you about Ahab because there's something that you did very interesting with Ahab. This is your first dog and, and you had him when you moved in with Joy. Mm -hmm. you, you got this dog. It was not a happy dog. And it was certainly not happy when you left it alone, was it? No, no. Ahab was up. Uh, Ahab showed up, and I actually wrote about this also in West of Jesus mm -hmm. um, a little bit. Um, I expanded on the story in Small Furry. Um, Ahab showed up on a friend of mine's doorstep, and he had been put through hell. His back had been broken. His tail had been snapped. There were cigarette burn marks down his back. Um, it looked like somebody had knocked his teeth out with a, with a heavy object. Um, they were, you know, broken and, and, and jarred in a way that was that was weird and unusual. Um, and he wouldn't leave my friend's doorstep. And my friend had a one dog and a landlord decreed limit of one dog per person. And so he started scouring the the world for a uh, for a home. And he, you know, got in touch with me. And I had, you know, it was time for me to get a dog. So, I, you know, and I met him and he actually bit me on first. I mean, the first thing Ahab <laughs> did to me is bite me because um, I moved my hand too quickly and had been abused. And he just... What kind of dog was he? He was a half Rottweiler, half Husky. He was a big guy. So this is a um, big, unhappy, 
big, unhappy, tormented, tormented dog. dog. But, you know, at the time I was also recovering from Lyme disease, so I was a pretty tormented human. And, you know, he nursed me back to health and I nursed him back to health. And it went slowly. And um, as much as, like, you know, he didn't like me much, he really didn't like it when I left the house. They have had really horrible, horrible, horrible separation anxiety and took, I mean, the beginning was strew the garbage across the apartment and when that wasn't working, it was tear the sofa apart and I can't tell you how much furniture that dog <laughs> took out those first six, seven, eight months. It was a, it was a, he was a destructive one <laughs> when he was pissed off. Well, now, what kind of advice did you get in order to try to cure that separation anxiety? And did you take that advice? And if you didn't, what did you do? Um, well, the advice, everybody's advice on separation anxiety is really, um, this was actually a real kind of big breakthrough for me because. It seems like it. It, yeah, it echoes it really through was. the I mean, there were a book. couple, there were, first of all, yeah, I mean, yeah, I have to kind of back into this question and say that when I was younger, as a teenager, of course, I had, you know, I, I had my morality, you know, I, there were these things I was going to fight for, and I had all this righteousness and arrogance, as you do when you're, you know, 18, 19, and, you know, punk rocker and political and whatever. Um, but the older I got, the more I started to see that morality, I mean, obviously, there were, there were certain things that seemed to hold true in most situations, but... Um, it seemed that most moral decisions actually get made in situations that are not normal situations. They're kind of extraordinary situations when you actually have to make a moral decision. And I discovered that morality is very situational specific. So I, I didn't have, you know, hard and fast ethical rules for living because I just didn't really know if there were any. And I, I didn't really, I was very interested in philosophy and spirituality and those kinds of questions, as you know, in science, but I really never thought about ethics that much. But with a dog, suddenly I was faced with all of these crazy ethical questions, including like, who, what is the responsibility with separation anxiety? All the experts say you either have to ignore it or you have to punish it, you can't tolerate it. You do all these hard, hard things. And, you know, I tried some of those hard, hard, and nothing was working. And, you know, the, the big crime in science is anthropomorphism. You can't, you know, you're not allowed to like put your feelings inside the animal. Of course, by the way, in the past five years, that's been turned on its head and everybody now kind of agrees that anthropomorphism is the absolute best way to, you know, get to know animals better and it's exactly what we should be doing. But now we understand mirror neurons and empathy and things about the brain that we didn't know during kind of the behaviorist era when that idea had come up. Um, but I just decided that if I could trust my read on Ahab's facial expressions when I was coming home, he looked guilty which meant he knew what he was doing and was doing it anyway. So the, there's, you know, what's the conclusion? Well, either, you know, this is political protest for, <laughs> for me leaving and he really doesn't want me to leave or he's so terrified but can't help himself. You know what I mean? Either way, he was terrified in my opinion and I just decided to treat him the way I would treat any other human being. If I had a friend who was staying with me and they had horrible separation anxiety and I had to go to work and I came back and they were very, very upset and whatever, I don't know, pulled books off my bookshelf or something like that, I would comfort that friend. That's what I would do. So that's what I started to do with Ahab. And it was like, you know, a week after I just started treating Ahab like a person, for lack of a better term here, um, the behavior vanished. And our relationship went from touch and go to head over heels in love um, very, very, very quickly. And all it took was like a slight shift in attitude and perspective. And so that was... I guess in hindsight, 
you know, a preview of where I was headed, though I, you know, I didn't know that at the time. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting. Now, uh, this this house you bought, you 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 enjoy have six eight dogs between you. You bought a house in Chamayo, New Mexico. You didn't know much about the area of New Mexico that you bought, and then you started hearing what was going on with it. Well, <laughs> tell us yeah, about Chamayo. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> okay, so. The, the short answer is that northern New Mexico, going from north from Santa Fe to the Colorado border, is, and you people could argue with me about parts of uh, Louisiana, New Orleans, Bayou area, but I don't think so. I think it's the strangest place in America, bar none. Um, first of all, for starters, it's some of the most serious outlaw territory in the lower 48. Mm-hmm. So it's a real true Old West outlaw culture. Um, which I don't really think exists. There was kind of a frontiersman culture up in Montana for a while in Wyoming, and I still think there are parts of it, and I still think that exists. But outlaw culture is a little different. And um, the By Southwest outlaw, is that. What do you mean? Uh, well, um, <laughs> I'll back into it. Uh, the, uh, first of all, during the 60s, uh, when the, the political movement split, and there was the protesters, and they stayed in the cities, and then the back to the landers all built a string of communes from Santa Fe north to the Colorado border. Mm-hmm. The hog farm is about 15 miles up the road from my front porch. That's where Wavy Gravy, that's the commune Wavy Gravy started. He was the MC at Woodstock. And it was also where the acid trip scene in Easy Rider was filmed mm-hmm. for a reason. And then you move, you know, 15 miles other direction, you get Los Alamos where they built the atomic bomb. And there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of environmental scientists and whatnot, but it, you know, there's also a lot of weapon scientists and government contracts. And so you, there's, you know, you've got hippies and new agers and what's on the, you know, on one side, and then you've got the science community on the other. And it, you know, kind of in between is where I live. It's the Española Valley, which is the known as the lowrider capital of the world. And then there's Chimaya, which is my little town, which is found kind of at the back end of the Española Valley, which is population 2000. It's famous for three things that Chimayo chilies, which is what kind of popularized southwestern cuisine. So it's a very rural place. We grow a lot of chilies there. Um, It's also um, famous for the Santuario de Chimayo, which is the one of the holiest Catholic sites in America. It's a mystical healing church where 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 people come and they're they're cured by what is now known as El Posito, the sacred sand pit. There was originally a crucifix that was unearthed there, but now the crucifix is gone, and there's the sand pit, and people come and they rub the sand on their bodies and miraculous healings occur. Um, like 300,000 pilgrims make the trip every so year. The Lords of America. Lords of America. But it's also one of the last final strongholds of penitente Christianity, which means you atone for your sins through self-flagellation. So Easter weekend, you get people like <laughs> Cato Nine tailing themselves down the street and crucified to crosses, dragging them down the street. And people will walk barefoot from Albuquerque, which is over 100 miles away. It's, I mean... It's really seriously strange. It's really heavy, heavy, heavy duty. Um, <laughs> on top of the third thing, and this is what you were alluding to, Chimayo is the black tar heroin capital of America. So most of the smack that comes up from Mexico comes through my tiny little town, um, which you know I had no idea of uh, when we moved there. And we actually found out because uh, my wife went over to knock on our neighbor's door our third day there to meet our neighbors, which are. You know, neighbors are critical in dog rescue. You've got a lot of animals that bark. They're going to get loose. you got to know your neighbors. And as my wife was knocking on the neighbor's door, literally between knock one and knock two, a DEA parade broke out. Like 150 armed men poured out of the woods, 
poured out of the street, cars with sirens, and she was the only person not carrying an automatic weapon within, you know, <laughs> two square miles. And they weren't actually even there to arrest my neighbor. They were there to arrest somebody down the street that they were using his property as a staging area, unbeknownst to him. So, like, my wife knocks, and he looks out the window, and there's, like, you know, 150 armed men running across his property. And, yeah, so that, that didn't go well, so well. Welcome to Chimayo. <laughs> welcome to Chimayo. Yeah, exactly. And it, by the way, got stranger from there. It really did. That was kind of our introduction. It was, it, it got a little, lot weirder. You know, one of the things that I love in this book is the way you create characters, your, your wife and, and yourself as a character. Uh, and I think you excel, and I hope you'll take this the right way, in what I would call moron charm. <laughs> That, that you approach things that you are completely unprepared for in, in pretty much uh, continuously and then have to find yourself in generally over your head and dealing with that. And that's an interesting style for, for a memoir. Well, <laughs> moron charm is an absolutely amazing <laughs> phrase. I love that. I want you to put it, write it somewhere so I can like put it on the back of my book. Okay. Also my book saying, you know, excellent at moron charm. Um, in all actuality, uh, that, uh, when I was coming up, uh, there were a lot of things, problems you have to solve as a writer, things mm -hmm. you have to learn how to do. I learned how to write about emotion from reading Joan Didion. Mm -hmm. She solved the problem of how do you convey emotion in a way that, that really resonated with me. I solved the problem of how do you, I wanted to go do these fantastic things. I wanted to have great adventures. Um, but, you know, first of all, I am not an expert at, you know what I mean? I can put words together in a straight line. That's where my talent lies, perhaps. But I'm not an expert at most of the things I do. I am very, very curious and willing to do anything. But how to write about that without sounding arrogant, like, oh, look at what I went in, because it wasn't, that wasn't kind of the experience. Anyways, and the master of that is actually Tim Cahill. Mm -hmm. who was an outside writer and um, when I was coming up and was, he was on staff at Outside and he is probably the first, like he's the great master of Moron Charm, I think. Like he was the, he was where I learned it from. I was like, uh -huh. and it wasn't even that I just learned it, I just like read his work and I was like, oh, he just tells the truth about what actually happens in these situations and if you tell the truth, like of course the arrogance goes out the window because it never, like I can tell about like all this stuff and make it sound heroic, but it wasn't at all. <laughs> you know, there's nothing heroic about, you get your butt kicked along the way most of the time. So, you know, it was a very honest answer to a writing process problem and it it fit who I was too I you know I don't take myself very seriously in a lot of situations um, and I put myself in a lot of you know unusual situations I guess dangerous situations I... well they, they they seem dangerous in hindsight <laughs> you know during the time not so much <laughs> or you know well I mean I, the first thing you did was to buy a mule yeah. Okay. Why well, did well, you do yeah, that? Okay. Yeah. See, this is that was real. Actual. That was not. That wasn't more on charm. There was no charm in there. So the house, like I, we really needed the house, right? And the owner, and we needed to get to move in fast. So the old owner had it was a goat farm. She had goats. She had chickens. She had a donkey named Fuzzy because Fuzzy had a skin disease and had actually almost no hair, patches of hair, which is kind of humor in Shemile, so they call him Fuzzy. Um, but uh. She had managed to find homes for all her other animals, but couldn't find a home for Fuzzy. So, you know, when I negotiated for the house, I needed her out fast, so I agreed to take Fuzzy. And, you know, Joy had actually been around donkeys before and, you know, thought they were manageable and, uh, and thought we could handle it. 
And we got down to Chimayo, and literally this, this was actually our welcome to Chimayo moment. Um, we, car, we caravaned, it was Joy, myself, and a woman named Elise, who was Joy's occasional dog rescue partner and close friend. And uh, Elise was unpacking the truck, and Joy was, you know, she had not been there. She hadn't seen her house. I just bought us a house, and she had, you know, so she was investigating the house, and the dogs were running wild. And I went down to the, the kind of back pen to say hello to Fuzzy, and, you know, I walked up, and I remember the first thing I, I did is I looked at the donkey, and I went, because I had seen Fuzzy, right, from a distance. I had met him, mm-hmm. or him once, really briefly. And in my mind, I remembered like a 250-pound animal. And I got back there, and I looked at the donkey, and I went, oh, wow, that's like 400 pounds of, of animal. That, Jesus, God, that's a big animal. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm walking down there, and, like, there's no, like, nobody, you know, like, there's nobody else around. Like, I got to go, like, greet the donkey. So I kind of, like, ease myself into the pen and let her stiff me, and I'm just giving her a good old scratch on the neck. And the problem with Fuzzy is donkeys are incredibly social animals. And Fuzzy had all this company her whole life. She had been hand-raised by really loving owners. And then she had goats, and donkeys love goats. They get along fabulously with goats and chickens in this big pack. And everything disappeared. And our the woman who owned the house left, and she hired you know a neighbor to basically come in twice a day and feed Fuzzy, or once a day maybe. And you know while we drove across the Southwest, the two and a half, three days that it took us to drive across the Southwest, and Fuzzy was mad. I mean, really, really pissed off at being left alone. Equines like large groups. And so I'm scratching kind of fuzzy and then, you know, I'm behind the neck and Elise comes down to meet Fuzzy and say hello. And she opens the gate just enough to kind of step through. But Fuzzy saw the opening and, you know, lowered her head, snorted once and rammed her snout into like my back and my butt and picked me off the ground and threw me into the air. And then when I was in midair, caught me again with her her forehead and rammed me into a fence post. I went, it was a tall fence post on the gate. I went chest first into the fence post. There's chicken wire like wrapping around my face and I'm literally dangling from the fence post. I'm caught like it's in my sternum. It punctured me a little bit, but I'm actually caught and I'm dangling there. And as I'm dangling there, Fuzzy like runs over Elise, literally like clips her in the shoulder and sends her spinning. And there's no fence around our property at this point. So Fuzzy gets out and the first thing she does is go hell's bells for Joy who Joy has this um, amazing reaction to um, inexplicable danger is she just bursts out laughing. And I don't know this at the time because I've never seen Joy in a high-risk situation before. So Joy just cracks up and dives into our rose bushes. And I'm still impaled on the fence. And I remember as like I'm hanging from the fence, this was about this right a second before like I fell down and then Fuzzy tried to kill all the dogs, but that's besides the point. But I remember thinking, wow, you live in the middle of nowhere. There is absolutely no help. This is your problem. You have a 400-pound pissed-off donkey running around. And by the way, if your horse runs into the street and a car runs into it, you're liable. And besides everything that happens to the animal, it's like you're liable for everything that happens. It's not the driver's fault. And a horse can kill a a driver. You know, it's enough enough to take out a driver, and it's going to kill the horse. So, like, I'm dangling there thinking, oh, I am really a moron. I am really, truly a country moron. I can't believe I could be this dumb. Wow, what are we going to do? <laughs> well, now, what you're what you're going to do is start accumulating more dogs. So talk about um, the local shelters and the local vets and becoming immersed 
as in the dog rescue movement because it is a movement. It, it's it's it, it is a movement, and and the, and the truth of the matter is, um, while there are actually kind of very very phenomenal men in the movement, um, I was mentored, I guess is probably the right word, by a trio of just powerhouse women. The first was Patricia Wright, um, who is kind of the first woman I'd ever met who had totally devoted her life to animals. And she's a MacArthur Genius Award-winning primatologist who I spent time with in Madagascar studying lemurs. So she was kind of my introduction to that this level. But then there was, of course, my wife, but we met the woman I think um, in Chimaya was a woman named Kathleen Ma Ramsey, Dr. Kathleen Ramsey, who runs the Northern New Mexico Wildlife Rehabilitation Center. And uh, she was one of the first kind of wildlife rescuers in America. Um, you know, she was a vet and got out of vet school. And in vet school, they taught you how to take care of dogs, cats, and farm animals. And she got out and was interested in working with birds. And that's where it started for her. And pretty soon, you know, she was helping wild birds that, had, you know, were hurt. But people kept bringing other animals to her. So she just started saying, okay, whatever it is, I'll, I'll help it. Um, and so these were, the, these were the, some of the women who mentored me. Uh, and obviously, uh, Kathleen uh, lives in northern New Mexico, so, so we met her very early on. The shelters, the Santa Fe shelter is actually one of the nicest in America. It's a wonderful shelter. They're very well funded. I mean, they have, like, the dogs have lots of things to play with, really good facilities. They have music piped into the shelter, which is really, like, soothing music, which is really good for the dogs. Um, the dogs so dogs like music. Yeah, they do like music. Um, it, it, and, uh, and they will sing along. Ahab used to, uh, wouldn't sing along with anything, but if I played, like, believe it or not, Middle Eastern hip hop, <laughs> uh, things like that. Anytime there was like sitar sounding music that was kind of like jangly and upbeat, he would start to howl along with it. He loved it. Um, so like Ravi Shankar didn't really get him there, but if like Ravi Shankar with a, with a, with a really good backbeat, yeah, that'll do it. <laughs> and uh, um, it was a, you know, yeah, they do like music. Uh, the Española shelter. Uh, it's a it's tougher to do to work with animals where I live because it's a it's rural and it's a farm community and in a lot of farm communities animals are seen as property and they have a use value and when they use up their use value they're kind of discarded at shelters and um, so the Española shelter has a little bit of a of a, of a tougher uphill road to climb. Now um, tell us about your very first experience when you first went into a shelter. You have a really fascinating description of that. Well, it's I an had, emotional I, yeah, I mean, Joy had been trying to get me to go to a shelter since almost the day we met. Mm -hmm. And I had been studiously avoiding it. I like, I knew instinctively that I, like, I had a weakness for dogs, you know, uh, and, and, and a lot of empathy and going into a shelter, you know, rescuers call it Sophie's choice. You have to choose the one dog, you know, who's going to live from hundreds who are not, um, the vast, you know, most shelters have 90% kill rates. Um, there are, most is probably an exaggeration, but a lot of shelters have 90% kill rates. Um, and that was what I was used to in Los Angeles, which is what Los Angeles shelters often often go at. And the Española shelter was, you know, in a, in a tough situation that way, too. Um, so I'd avoided this. And when we finally, like, got to New Mexico, Joy was like, you run a dog rescue, for Christ's sakes. <laughs> you know, go rescue a dog. <laughs> you opened a dog sector. And I was like, okay, I can't, you know, I can't fight this anymore. And... You know, the interesting thing about rescue is, you know, normal, normally when you go into a shelter, you're looking for a dog who you like, you, you know, which, you know, cute, friendly, and rescuers are looking for dogs they can help. 
So you want dogs who would not get adopted otherwise. And, you know, dogs don't get adopted for a wide variety of reasons. There's something called black dog syndrome, which is people don't like black dogs. Even black people don't like black dogs. Um, and there's articles written about black dog syndrome. People don't like chubby dogs or dogs who dig or drool or pee or... You know, black all, dogs have a supernatural they do. Uh, implication. Yeah, they There's do have a, they do tons have tons of reports of black dogs in Fordian literature. Yeah, and I should tell you they're all true. But, <laughs> um, so you're looking for like dogs who you could actually where you can make a difference. And you know, Joy and I had also um, we now specialize kind of in the worst of the worst. We like to do long. We do like to do stuff that most rescuers don't like to do. Um, we do long-term rehab, so one to two years worth of rehab before a dog is going to be eligible for adoption. We work with really, really severely handicapped dogs, physically abused dogs, mentally abused dogs, crazy dogs, feral dogs, blind dogs, deaf dogs, old dogs, blah, blah, blah. Um, so we're looking for that kind of dog, but also one who we can help, and it's going to be adoptable. And, you know, I ended up finding, uh, he was actually a Leonberger, which uh, is, a, is a breed that most people, they kind of like a golden cross with a shepherd, um, but very, very big. This guy was actually, his growth was stunted, and he, I probably had more shepherd in him than Leonberger, um, and he was grossly underweight, and his coat was stringy, and his eyes were sunken, and um, he was just, he was a sad sack, and uh, um, I did I did rescue him, but what was what was heartbreaking about, about it is uh, when I walked into the shelter, you know, before I actually found Leo, uh, I was, you know, looking around the shelter, and I met, like, you know, to my right was my friend Tara's Pitbull, and to my left was my friend Barry Shepherd, and like all the dogs in there were, you know, most of them were perfectly fine, totally healthy, healthy, wonderful animals, and you know, none of them stood a chance. And I and I remember I went back a, a few weeks later to check on that the Pitbull that I that I had met, and he had been put down in the you know in the in the interim, and kind of that's the reality of the shelter. And it you know it took me a little while to kind of like develop the backbone to like you know be able to be able to handle that it seems like there's there's so much emotion in what you do i mean it seems like um uh you must have have you felt like your emotions themselves like become stretched and and more powerful or more controllable i mean because what you do is so fraught with emotions the connections with dogs are so so intimate and powerful and intuitive there's not there's none of the intellectual or not very much of the intellectual aspect when two people have are are connected they can talk and there's some of that that keeps the emotions at bay there's none of that with a dog so talk about what happens to your emotions and, and accumulating your your first pack um they were the both things were very tied together it was you know journalism is not really about empathy you need enough empathy to get the story but then you have to turn it off you're supposed you're being paid to be objective you're being paid not to be empathetic and that's um and there's you know and there's a lot even in the kind of you know journalism i do where i you know seek out really interesting individuals who you know whose lives are really interesting to me even in that kind of journalism you have to you know maybe especially because you really like these people but you have to present you know an objective view of them as much as you can so you know i've learned to shut off empathy and a lot of my emotions along the way as a journalist and uh and I was probably never very, you know, I was, I, I think I was probably a very, very sensitive and emotional kid, um, which is not a great thing to be as a kid, by the way. <laughs> so, you know, I learned to repress and shut all that down 
pretty good. And then I became a journalist, which was even, you know, more of it. So, you know, I don't want to say that I, you know, gone through my life without feeling my emotions because that's ridiculous. Um, and, you know, my friends will probably tell you, you know, that I'm, you know, overly emotional, but I thought I had it all under control. <laughs> um, you know, dog rescue is a game of empathy. It's just, I mean, that's, you have to, you have to feel for the animals all the time. And you have to do it, by the way, because you're constantly, that's with, with rescue where these animals show up without a backstory. You don't know what's happened to them. You get like a veterinary update and everybody's best guess. You got to figure out, you know, behave, their behaviors are puzzles, especially, you know, the dogs we do. And we have to solve these puzzles and, you know, try to make the dog happy in every situation. You know, every situation, it's what's the best decision for the dog? What's going to make the dog the happiest and the healthiest? And that requires putting yourself in the dog's perspective. So on top of the fact that, as you pointed out, it's dogs and they're, they're an emotional thing to begin with. The job of rescue is to feel more because you need that. Plus, the other thing is, I got, I got to tell you, when you you know suddenly discover that you're spending $500 a month on dog food in the middle of the worst recession since the Great Depression, um, you need that empathy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's the only thing that's going to keep you you know from losing your mind along the way. But it was uh, there's a great Joan Didion line. I can't even remember what it's from anymore, and I can I can't even quote it. Or I'm going to bastardize it. But she basically says, you know, when you're younger you think you can bear any emotional cost. <laughs> and I had, you know, rest, journalism and, and things along those lines, I had, like, put myself in a lot of situations, a lot of, as you pointed out, high-risk situations over the years and dangerous situations, and I really thought I could handle everything. And with Dog Rescue, I very quickly realized I, I couldn't. I mean, you're, when our dogs, we didn't actually, none of our dogs died for a very long time. Joy is very, very good at rehabilitation, and I've gotten a lot better. Um, so nobody died for the first year and a half that we were together, and then we lost seven dogs in seven weeks, and I lost my mind. I really, like, I went, you know, my fir- Ahab died first, and that, you know, threw me for a loop, and then we actually started finding homes for some of the rescues. Leo, my first rescue, we found a home for him right in that same kind of period, and a home for another dog named Wookie. So it wasn't even just, like, seven dogs died. It was two more went away and I had like, you know, fallen in love with these dogs Your along the way. Your pack was being decimated. My pack was being decimated and I, I really did. I like the grief, it, I've lost friends, I've lost family and this was so much worse. I had like nothing prepared before it. I sat down in a rocking chair and really didn't move for two months. It was really, I really thought I was going to lose my mind. I thought I was losing my mind and I didn't think I was gonna bounce back from it. I was like, oh wow. I, this is the thing I can't do, I guess. And, you know, of course I bounced back from it and all the melodrama was aside, but it was scary at the time. I, I really, like, my emotions were out of control. I was, you know, I would, yeah, just, I would Talk find myself. Talk about that kind of grief. Was, I mean, that, that's actually, it, that's true grief. And, yeah, it's true grief. And, I mean, what's interesting about uh, uh, pet grief, pet, uh, companion animal bereavement, I believe is the, is the technical term that they use now, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was a myth psychologically. Psychologists didn't believe it actually existed. They couldn't believe that people would grieve over animals until very, very recently. Um, now they know that not only do people grieve over animals, but for, for, for reasons that kind of just have to do how, with how the brain works and how much time we spend with animals, um, we actually now know that, that you can, it can be far worse. The death of a pet can be far worse than a, than a loved one or, or, you know, or family member, that kind of thing, close friend. Um, so it's, it was incredibly, incredibly powerful. And to have seven in a row and, you know, it was a scary time. And I was not prepared for it. Um, but, you know, there's a, that's the, like, big kind of, like, that's the big thing. But even, like, even the little things, like, 
I always think of dogs now as like they're perfect little Zen cones. Everyone's a little different puzzle and, and the puzzle is always going to be solved by like whatever the solution of the dog's problem is. On my end, it's going to be patience or empathy or unconditional or all these like ridiculously hard lessons that, you know, I didn't even know that I wanted to like learn or, you know, now it's become interesting to me because I've had to work with this stuff and I've had, got, had to make a, I have a different relationship with death now than I did. You know what I mean? Most Westerners are balkanized from death. They don't experience a lot of death or, you know, even with loved ones, we, you know, outsource it. We send them to the hospitals to die um, or old folks' homes. But, you know, I've got death in my house all the time. And it's, you know, it's actually I've come to really appreciate death and, 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 and like it. And it's changed my relationship towards death. And I'm not, you know, which is not to say that I don't get devastated when the dogs die these days, but it's, I can handle it and I know it's not going to kill me and I have some confidence going forward and I, I know I'm just going to, you know, feel crummy for a couple of days and not make much sense. And so I just kind of like, you know, spend time with joy and don't talk much. But I've, I've learned how to, you know, I've learned how to handle it better because it's a part of the job. One of the things I love about the way you tell your stories in, in this book is the way you weave in science and, and with your personal experience. And it, I think it's interesting that one of your reactions to, to life, it seems, is to immediately try to figure out what the science is, and often the neuroscience. It is very much um, my reaction to life. I, you know, I go to the neuroscience. It's not, I want to understand how it works on every level. So I want to understand the neuroscience, because uh, I think the brain is, you know, whether or not, you know, we want to have big consciousness arguments or mind is contained in brain or not, that all of that besides the point, we certainly, you know, our experience of the world is mitigated through the brain. That's the first stop of all incoming information. So it's a really, I'm kind of geeky in the engineering way. I want to know how things work from a bottom up. So I want to know how does the neuroscience work? And then what does that mean at a psychological level, at a biological level? And how does all that translate into behavior and, you know, what we see... And that's, um, I've got a very macroscopic brain and I need kind of that holistic picture before I can understand it. I don't, um, that's the only, that's really the only way I understand things. And, you know, I am interested fundamentally in, in things that are mysterious and, and, and magical, but that doesn't mean, I mean, to me and science is the greatest tool for exploring that stuff. Um, so yeah, of course, the very first thing I try to understand is, you know, once I find a puzzle, I think about that puzzle in scientific terms. So, you know, I, I write my books. The science is kind of woven through my book because that's how my brain thinks about these things. I'm trying to understand what I'm seeing. I'm kind of a phenomenologist in that way. Yeah, I, I want to, you know, understand the experiences I'm having at, at a deeper level, I guess. We, we talked about some of the human characters you create, but that's not the only characters in this book, of course. No, there are way more dog characters than human <laughs> characters in this book. Talk about creating dog characters for, for humans to read about. It was, first of all, it's really actually, uh, it, was, it's, it took a very long time to figure out how to do that. Because uh, all the dogs are different. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, one of the things, you know, and I, I point this out very early on, but, you know, dogs have all the seven primary emotions we have and they have all of our affective emotions. They have personalities that are just as kind of deep and complicated as human personalities. All the things that go in to form a human personality, essentially we now know are, are present in dogs. Um, which means you gotta kind of paint them that way. You gotta give them their personalities and let them kind of be who they are because that's, that's part of the story. But it took, when they're not, when there's not 
verbal communication, it's you know, it's hard to figure out how to do that and distinguish all the dogs. I mean, you could hit on the Charles Dickens thing where you always mention like, you know, Mr. Peterson had the long nose and Dickens would always repeat the long nose detail all the way through the book so you know who the character is. I didn't, you know, go that route, but uh, y- you kind of got to like you f- solve those problems. So writing about dogs was... Um, you know, on a certain level, it was wonderful, but on another level, it actually really stretched me as a writer. And it also, you know, I wrote, as I said earlier, Joan Didion kind of inspired me, taught me how to write about emotions. But Joan is very, very removed from her emotions. Um, and uh, that worked in West of Jesus. I could, I had that, I could, I could keep a little bit of that distance from my emotions in West of Jesus. It didn't really work that well in this book. Dogs, as you pointed out, are fundamentally an emotional topic, so you had to, I had to have more of that stuff in here. So this was there were really kind of like no models. This, I think, is the first book that is 100% just my voice and me trying to solve writing problems and without being able to look at other writers for how did they solve these things because the situation was so, was, was very, was unique. And um, the things I had to do with my writing were not, I didn't, I didn't have, you know, models or people other authors to look at and say well how did they solve these problems it was, I was kind of on my own the whole way and had to figure it out which was you know exciting and challenging too so you're out there in the goat shack uh, typing away while your wife's doing going through some of the what you call daily living <clears throat> at one point talk about what daily living in, entails and also talk to you, you, you guys uh, have a specialty I mean we see a, a picture of a chihuahua on the cover. Oh. And, and talk about the plight of these chihuahuas. It's a really interesting topic. Well, we do. We work with small dogs. And it wasn't actually intentional. It's a funny story. My wife started out rescuing bull terriers, which are the Spuds McKenzie dogs. They're big pit bulls, right? And they're very, very, very aggressive. You have a great and very funny description of them with the, to, to how they were bred to go after the bulls. You, you have a dark and funny sense of humor, which makes this book really enjoyable. Well, thank and you, then, sir. And it comes through in the prose, which I think is, is a, a key part of your appeal. I mean, it's the other half of the equation. There's the moron appeal over here, so we can, the moron charm would work, so we can identify, say, yeah, God, I could do that, and I might fall on my face, but hey, he got up again. And then, then there's this kind of dark sense of humor, too, that, that comes through. And, and it's very funny. It makes the book really enjoyable. Thank you. I, uh, I don't know if it's dark or not. You know, I, mean, I've never, I don't think I've reflected that much on, on exactly what style. It's just my perspective. Mm. Um, well, let's get back to this bull terriers. And, and oh, so Joy started out rescuing bull terriers. And they're so aggressive, you can only have so many of them. It becomes mm. just almost impossible after a certain number. And, and then around, I think the Joy at one point had five and realized that putting more bull terriers into that mix was just too dangerous. And But she wanted to do more. She had, you know, Joy had been a dog rescuer for 20, 25 years. And uh, she wanted to do more than just help five dogs because that's how rescuers are. And uh, they're driven by this great, amazing, burning guilt to do more. I've never seen it, you know, and I was raised with a Jewish mother. And so I, you know, I know something about guilt. But no, rescue guilt is like what they... they want to do more and more and more and I, and I understand that now but uh so she realized that the only dogs that a bull terrier wouldn't attack on sight were chihuahuas they just bull terriers just don't take chihuahuas seriously they're it's not enough of a snack or I, whatever it is they, so she started rescuing chihuahuas and discovered she has an innate talent for small dogs with serious problems especially serious immunological problems you know and I all rescuers tend to specialize and they usually specialize you know in the areas where they can do the most good and this was where joy could do the most good so that's 
the direction we moved in, you know, I was never a huge small dog fan. I was a big dog guy. It took me a really long time to, now I'm crazy, absolutely crazy about the Chihuahuas, but it was an acquired taste. I really had to like, and it, it didn't happen until we started running our dogs through the back country. When you see like 20 Chihuahuas running as a pack through the Badlands, they're not these shy, skittish, little yappy dogs anymore. They're kind of crazy pack hunters and will do absolutely insane, brave stuff along the way. And it, they won me over. Um, and now I'm, now I'm crazy for them. But uh, it took a little while. And, but we, you certainly can do a lot. You know what I mean? We, we, we have uh, you know, a handful of big dogs, five, six big dogs, and I think at this point, you know, 26, 27 chihuahuas or smaller dogs. And so you can actually kind of pack a lot into her and, and, really, and really make a difference here. And, and chihuahuas are certainly, you know, since Paris Hilton happened, um, Chihuahuas became a, a, a big thing in LA and people saw the photos of Paris carrying around, you know, this dog in her purse and I don't know what they thought, this is a fashion accessory instead of a live animal, but people would get, you know, Chihuahuas and they would discover that they're real beings with personalities and needs and behaviors and, you know, they're not a little toy and they're not like a necklace or a pair of earrings, so they're getting dumped at the shelters by the thousands and things have gotten so bad in Los Angeles uh, that recently um, we were getting reports that in the shelters chihuahuas are, are being put down after 24 hours, meaning they get dropped off at the shelter and given 24 hours to live. If somebody doesn't adopt them in that period of time, they have to be euthanized to make room for the next batch of chihuahuas that are coming in. So um, there's a lot of there's there's a lot of supply right now, probably not enough demand. And you know, breeders are making the smaller they make these dogs the more money they can make. So it's $6,000 for a tiny little chihuahua. But the, the dark side of that is that for every, you know, one healthy chihuahua you get, these dogs are made small by inbreeding. They're breeding brothers with sisters and whatnot. So you get nine, you know, six to nine really sick dogs in the litter, none of whom are going to be adoptable because they don't look like the cute, perfect dog that Paris Hilton is running around with. So, you know, not only for, like, every dog that, like, actually gets adopted, um, there's, you know, there's a whole lot of dogs who are in need and are just going to be put down. So it's a, it's a pretty rough situation, and we can make a big difference in it right now. So that's kind of where we're going. You nurse these dogs back to health, and they have some. You learned a lot of stuff you didn't expect about dogs. I mean, you found out you had a lot of gay dogs. <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> well, one of the things uh, that you know we I quit very quickly discovered probably in between like fifteen and. 18 dogs, we started to see a tremendous amount of behavior that doesn't show up in the scientific literature um, at all. A lot of things that that very few people have seen or, or nobody's seen or nobody's written about. And This is because, too, you're not keeping your dogs well, and individually. This is a, a huge pack of 18. How many How many dogs now do you have? Now it's th Right now, today, it's 32 or 33. 33 dogs in a pack living. They're, they're well, not, we, are they uh, separated? No. I mean, let me... Uh, let me back into your question. I'll tell you a little bit about our methodology. Okay. So dogs evolved to live in large packs of dogs with a couple of humans. Mm -hmm. And until the advent of agriculture, humans and dogs have been co-evolving together. There's a big argument going on, but it's somewhere between 50 and 135,000 years ago. And if it's 135,000 years ago, you can make the case that we've been evolving, we've been co-evolving with dogs for longer than we've actually been human. So we've got a long history. 10,000 years ago with the advent of agriculture, we had to switch our perspective towards nature. Up to that point, humans and animals believed they were equal. 
um, to animals. We were not a superior species. With the advent of agriculture, we had to subjugate the land and the beast, and that required a lot of emotional distance. If you're gonna, you know, raise animals for food and live with them and then like eat them, you need a lot of separation from those animals because you're gone. They're animals. They're cute. They're cuddly, cuddly. You're caring for them and then you're eating them. You need distance. So that was where the dominion over the beast myth kind of arose in the Bible, and that was when we learned to subjugate the beasts. But we, you know, dogs evolved in, in egalitarian environment with humans, so we strive for that environment for the very simple reason that if you create an environment that dogs evolved in, uh, they feel safer. Safer means less stress. Less stress means better long-term health outcomes, so we don't cage our dogs. They, they cure they, quicker, too. And they cure very, very quickly. Yeah. The pack does a lot of the work. Also, we don't have to do a lot of teaching and training, by the way. We can just introduce our dogs to the pack. But So there's no, there's a lot of freedom. And we also take the dogs into high-risk environments, into the backcountry. Um, I do a lot of kind of running up and down cliff faces and through the arroyos and whatnot with the dogs. But just in the backcountry in general, humans are, we're not the top of the food chain out there. In the Badlands in New Mexico, I've got cougars, I've got bobcats, I've got packs of coyotes, I've got wolves. Excuse me, I don't have wolves. I have bears. <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, there's the risk. Uh, kind of the dogs understand what's going on. They, they know that, like, in that environment, we all have to kind of band together to survive, even if that's not really the case. Mm -hmm. They think it's the case, and it feels like the case to them. And, uh, and there's certainly an element of it. I mean, there's definitely, you know, more risk out there than there is, you know, in the suburbs, <laughs> somebody's backyard. So, uh, and they're off leash. And... But it produces tremendous, tremendous healing results. As Joy and I usually get, our dogs are, come to us with warnings, three weeks to live, a month at most. Happens all the time, especially because we do hospice care. And invariably, these dogs are alive two to three years later. Mm. I mean, they, the, our dogs just don't die. <laughs> they really respond incredibly well. Uh, to, that means you're actually dog rescuing, eh? Yeah, I mean, the, to, to, I, I, get, I guess we are. And I, this, this is, by the way, not to disparage anybody else's methods. I think everybody kind of figures out what they can do and what they want to do, and, and, and we have the space to do it. You know, most rescuers I know uh, live in cities, and they live in apartments, and they want to save dogs, so they've got like 15 pit bulls caged in their apartment type of thing. Totally different thing, and I think it's actually a lot harder than what we do. Um, but, you know, and I, you know, I, I applaud every, every one of those people. But So we do create this egalitarian environment, and it does produce kind of ridiculous healing effects, and I'm happy to get back to your question, but you've got to remind me of what you asked. <laughs> Uh, talk talk about creating the pack right? and you know investing your emotions in in the pack. How how long did that take? I mean, how long? And it, and also too, you as you were creating this pack, you were um, talking about uh, you were exploring the philosophical relations between humans. Descartes had one notion, and uh, Richard. Uh, Peter Singer has another. So talk about those two opposite poles of, of well, human animal I, okay. relations. Okay, that's a decent place to start. So, you know, going back to Descartes, Descartes decided animals didn't have a soul. He, he decided they couldn't, because they weren't capable of language, he couldn't know what they were thinking, so he decided they just couldn't think. He thought animals were actually machines with incredibly intricate parts, and, you know, that was that fit in very nicely with a kind of what happened after agriculture and our need to kind of subjugate the natural world and um, it, it you know it fit a myth that was essentially a survival myth for humans and, and Descartes kind of gave it a, you know a philosophical backbone and obviously a long line of really 
smart thinkers have disagreed, but it's kind of the predominant characteristic. And, you know, over the years, we've come up with a huge, long list of things that make humans a superior species. But the truth of the matter is, and this is what we learned very, very early on, um, most of the things on that list uh, we see in our animals. Mm -hmm. Consciousness, personality. You mentioned earlier homosexuality. Um, you know, for years, the, the homosexuality is everywhere in nature. Over 400 species exhibited, but nobody wanted to look at it. Nobody wanted to see what it was. So they kind of like they thought they thought when dogs mounted another dog, it had to always be about dominance and aggression because we had this idea that nature was always competitive and it wasn't cooperative, and that's just an erroneous nature. And red in tooth and claw. Yeah, red in tooth and claw, and it was it's it's just a wrong wrong view of nature. It shaded our perceptions of everything for years and years and years and led us to a lot of erroneous conclusions. It's just not true scientifically anymore. Um, so, you know, we see laughter in our animals. There's fashion, as you mentioned. Not only do we have, by the way, not only do we see a tremendous amount of homosexual behavior, but you see, we have one dog named Damien, who's a little tiny hunchback chihuahua, who's very, 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 very uh, gay, only likes boy dogs. But he also is very, very picky. Chihuahuas need clothes in the mountains. We live in the mountains. They need clothes to survive because they're not adapted. So the, one of the reasons people dress up chihuahuas, it's not just to be cute. It's to keep them alive because they, they're desert mammals and they're used to being hot in Mexican weather. And, you know, when you take them out of that, the tropics, um, they shake and freeze. So you, you dress them up. Damien is super, super, not only is he super picky about his clothes, but when he finds a sweater to his liking, we get the canine equivalent of a drag show. He just parades around, puffed up. And, you know, one of the things when I talk about, like, we see all this behavior that, like, you know, isn't supposed to be there in animals or whatever. I mean, it, a drag show isn't something that, you know, is it fantastic or not fantastic. It's definitely something you would just think this is just human only, right? You would, you would never. But no, you know, shows up in dogs. And uh, one of the reasons I, I, I want to tell you, by the way, I don't, it's not because we're doing anything fantastic with our animals. It's the vast majority of canine research is studies run in labs, which is a totally unnatural environment, or surveys of pet owners. But we've got 78 million dogs owned by 69 million families in America, which means the vast majority of us only have one dog. Mm -hmm. Very few people uh, live with actual packs, and that's, so we don't, we have no idea what the upper limit of possible is, both for our relationship with animals and even the animals themselves, because we're not letting them live in a natural environment or anywhere close to it. We're not observing dogs in their natural environment. So, you know, we have, enjoyed myself at Rancho de Chihuahua, we've put dogs in a, in a fairly natural environment. I don't want to say that, like, you know, we certainly control their food supply and a couple of other things, but, you know, we very quickly see all, all kinds of things. And let me just give you kind of the most fantastic um, couple of examples. Very early on, um, we have a, Otis, who's one of our bull terriers, is a very irascible dog and really, hated being touched by any of their dogs. And when he was sleeping, if you walked through his field of vision, he could be snoring. But if you walked through his field of vision, his eyes would snap open and he would growl and, and go at the dog. Um, there was one dog we had, a little chihuahua named Hugo, who we allowed near him. He was the only dog who was allowed near Otis. And all Hugo was allowed to do was lick his butt. <laughs> and literally. So one day I was kind of napping. I was, I was actually reading on the couch and I was blanketed by dogs. I had the big dogs on my legs and I had like eight chihuahuas on, on top of me. And um, before I could do anything about it, Gidget ran up and climbed on top of Otis and laid down for a nap. Like, she loved to do it on the human chest, and at this point she did it on Bull Terrier chest. And I thought, you know, I couldn't move quickly, and I really thought Gidget was going to die. I thought Otis was going to kill her in a second. Joy was, Joy was gone, and I was the only one home. And Otis, it was like, you know, the analogy I use is it was um, 
goofy hit by a two by four like his eyebrows and his eyes shot up and it really did look like something out of a cartoon <laughs> and then like I'd never seen deductive logic in a dog before but Otis literally and I watched like the expressions pass across his face and I realized what was going on he realized that Gidget was crazy and if she was crazy well the normal rules don't apply so he just kind of snorted and went back to sleep and from that moment on Gidget got a pass with Otis but that kind of altruistic gesture on Otis's part, and mind you, altruism is not supposed to be found in dogs, right? It spread through the whole pack. Pretty soon, Gidget got a pass with all of the dogs, and she could walk on top of anybody. And two days later, I guess, uh, Joy saw Gidget take a bone away from Otis, and Otis let her have it. And like two days after that, I watched her take food out of another dog's mouth, and the other dog let her have it. This is kind of ridiculous, but it was at that moment, up until that point, Feeding time at the zoo was a nightmare. You tr try taking 20 dogs and feeding them. The, you got to put everybody in a different room and, and, you know, to protect the dogs and everything else. It was horrible. And we just tried an experiment. We started spreading dog food on the back porch like chicken seed. And the dogs started to share almost immediately. Like the first time they saw it, they were like, what the hell is going on? And, you know, dogs are not known for their ability to share food. Mm. But our dogs started sharing food. There was no fighting. There was no barking. There was no arguing. There was not even, like, it's quiet. They just started sharing food. And this has gone on and on and on. That's how we feed our dogs today. But more than that, even when we have new dogs, when we have very sick dogs or older dogs, we will see the bigger dogs positioning themselves between the rest of the pack and the older, newer, sicker dog, whatever, to make sure that the injured animal gets enough to eat. And we also see cultural transmission because Otis died about six months after this story. But, and we're many generations of dogs since kind of that original pack. Very few members are, have, have, have lived throughout the whole period. And so we've got cultural transmission in non-related dogs, right? None of our dogs are, are brother and sister um, throughout a period of years and a pack of dogs. And that's another thing you're not supposed to see in dogs, altruistic behavior, empathetic behavior. So what has happened, and this will lead me back to the Peter Singer question, is, you know, very quickly we found out that Kind of most everything that like is supposed to separate humans from dogs, well, dogs are capable of it. And as a matter of fact, a lot of the things this is a this is the work of a, a really brilliant, brilliant, brilliant canine ethologist named Wolfgang Schleich, who holds the Conrad Lorenz chair at the University of Vienna, which is Conrad Lorenz, probably one of the great kind of ethologists of the 20th century. Brilliant man, and this is the guy who has his chair. And what he deduced is been a long puzzle about where did humans get their morality from. It's, it, primatologists have been trying to figure it out for years and years and years because chimpanzees are not altruistic. They're not cooperative. They will take care of their immediate family and that's it. But in the larger pack, they're all they're super competitive. They're always trying to get over on, on whatnot. So questions about humans' cooperative behavior and empathetic behavior and altruistic behavior, it's been a long puzzle where this came from. But then once we discovered DNA dating techniques and started to realize that we've been co-evolving with dogs for a significant period of time, long enough for evolution to have worked, Wolfgang Schleip was the first one to point out that the closest approximation of human morality found in nature is found with the gray wolf. So the new thinking is that we got our morality from cohabitating with wolves, and a lot of the things that would be found under, you know, kind of our vaunted humanity, our humanism, everything that would fall under that bracket are actually things we learn from dogs. So so humans were brought up by wolves. We were raised by wolves. And by the way, um, the, interesting, there, there's, some, there's some proof here too. This is not just a, a theory. Um, one of the things that you know of domestication is essentially the process of outsourcing basic survival needs. Mm -hmm. 
So you've got a brain. It's a very expensive organ, by which means it requires a lot of energy to run the brain. It's 2% of our body weight, but takes 20% of our energy. So anytime nature can find a way to use less energy in the brain, it does. So in domestication, brain size shrinks. So domestic pigs, uh, their brain is 34% smaller than wild pigs. Horses are 16%. Dogs are somewhere between 10 and 30%. But here's the interesting thing. Human brains shrunk and by 10%, and they shrunk by 10% right around the time that we started cohabitating with dogs. So the old idea of humans domesticated dogs has been replaced by the new one, which is they domesticated us as well. <laughs> now, one of the things uh, that you talk about is the breakthrough moment for you emotionally when one of your dogs vomited in your mouth. Well, <laughs> now this is most, this is not what most people would consider a breakthrough. That is true. Um, okay. So we have to, we have to, it, it wasn't so much as a breakthrough, um, as a, um, there's a learning curve as you move into dog rescue. You know, I grew up in, in the Midwest where, where, where the man was the king of his castle, mm -hmm. right? And let me, t my castle, right? I'd always wanted to buy a home and this was the first home I built. And, you know, we raise feral dogs who don't like men. So like there, I can walk into a room in my house and be chased out of a room in my own house by my own dogs. Routinely, I get bit in my own house routinely. All these things like, you know, it's not like, it, there's a certain psychological adjustment that is required and, and goes along with the empathy. So I had been making that adjustment and making that adjustment and making that adjustment. And what happened with Farah is I had gotten sick I think I'd been traveling or running around doing something, but I got the flu. And uh, do dogs and wolves, too, uh, they will regurgitate meals for sick dogs. And it's one of the things they do to care for sick dogs. And, you know, that would caring for others, altruism again. And, you know, we, maybe we learned it from them. So I was sick, and, I, and I'd been sick for a couple of days, and I hadn't been eating. And I was, um, I was dead asleep, and I was snoring. And my mouth was open, and Farah literally, Farah, this little tiny chihuahua, literally came over, and I was awoken by the sensation of vomit in my mouth. Farah vomited into my mouth while I was dead asleep, which is certainly, you know, like a morality tale about the dangers of snoring. <laughs> but uh, the craziest thing about it is, like, I realized, like, I don't quite, you know, it was a little hazy. It was in the middle of the night, um, but I remember, I knew immediately kind of what had happened. And I, oddly, I knew immediately, like, why it had happened. Um, and it, you know, it made sense to me on a certain level. And I just, like, I wasn't even mad. I, like, I kind of, like, spit out, you know, I obviously, I spit out the puth. And you could just a lot of mouthwash and brush my teeth for a while. And, you know, there was that. Um, but I, the crazy thing was I didn't feel disgust. And that was, like, that was, in a sense, that was the breakthrough. Because mm -hmm. um, disgust is a... It's a fundamental emotion. It's hardwired into it. We, it's very, very hard not to feel disgust. Right. Um, literally, like the reaction is automatic. It, it, it goes from the, the amygdala, which is you know where all the incoming sensory information in the brain goes, and it bypasses the cortex and goes right into like behavior. So you can react really, really quickly to mm -hmm. something. Um, oddly, I didn't feel disgust when this happened, uh, which to me, you know. First of all, it was a symbol of I had been accepted into the pack at a really kind of high level. Um, and that took a while. The Chihuahuas, um, I didn't like them at first, and they didn't like me. You know, it took Farah, uh, when Farah did that, she had spent the first, most of the first year avoiding me and running away from me, and I couldn't even pet her. 
And then like slowly over a period of like four or five months, we had like started to become friends. And, and I will say one thing, and this is probably what more of what you're getting at is when you have to, you know, dogs are needless creatures. They're going to love you. So you go to the pet store or you go to a breeder or you go to the pounder or whatever. And if you get a young enough dog, um, they're going to let it's you, you can buy your love literally. Um, you don't have to do much for it. Um, and even in, you know, with most healthy dogs, you don't have to do much to win a dog's trust. They're built to trust humans and they, and they want to, and they like humans. But with rescue situations, it can be six months, a year, year and a half till you actually like have a relationship with the dog. So you, you have to earn that relationship and you start to realize, you know, this cross species friendship, which is first of all, totally anomalous in nature. It doesn't, very few species, cross species friends exist mm -hmm. um, and nothing like the relationship we have with our dogs. Um, and you start to see that relationship for what it is, which is absolutely astounding. You know, when a little chihuahua runs up on my chest, it's the same of me basically like running up on the chest of a dinosaur or, you know, a giraffe or an elephant to like snuggle up. That's not something you would do casually. You know what <laughs> you I mean? You would have to have a lot of trust in that You would have elephant. to have a lot of trust and, you know, and dogs, dogs do it too. And when you, so when you stop taking the relationship for granted, which is what happens when you have to earn it and work for it, you actually start getting to see what's going on and you know, really appreciating it. It's kind of, it's, it's astounding to me. It's really amazing. And then to like, have to earn that trust and then to be kind of so accepted into a fact that a dog puked in my mouth. I got, it just sounds horrible. And everybody's going to think I'm nuts, but really, um, the fact that I didn't react to it, I was like, wow, this, like, I, I felt like something had been accomplished. Like, you know, I had summited Everest. Uh, well, you have. Now, you had an experience, a, a spiritual experience, a supernatural experience near an a outcropping you called a thumb with a dog. Yeah, I had a very, uh, it was a very weird day. It was a very strange, strange day. I had, um, I had gone for a very long hike with about five or six dogs, uh, including a bull terrier named Igor. Um, and the thumb is... Uh, you know, ever since we had been in New Mexico, it's very big in the New Age community. There's a lot of like, oh, it's a power spot. Oh, it's, you know, it's, it's got all this stuff going on. And, and you, it's got the same ley lines as Lhasa, Tibet. And I don't even know what that means, um, really. Um, but uh, you did, and you don't pay too much attention to it because it's everywhere. I mean, I bought that when I bought my house. The woman I bought my house from told me there were fifth dimensionals in the area. I'm still not sure what a fifth dimensional is, and maybe it's like the ghost of Michael Jackson. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, but uh, I had kind of dismissed all that stuff as, as one is want to. Um, but the thumb was this kind of, it's, it was like a 400-foot tall sandstone sculpture in the middle of the Badlands. It looks like a giant hitchhiker's thumb sticking up out of the earth. It's huge. And I'd always wanted to get there. And it's, it, it, it actually, as it turns out, it's very easy for me to walk to. But until I discovered the right way through the canyon maze, it took, you know, this is the first time I went there, it took almost two hours to hike there because I totally went the wrong way and, and, and whatever. But we, we got there and... Uh, Taking two hours meant you took, went the right way. It's not just getting there the easy way. Well, yeah, you might be right about that. <laughs> I think you probably are. Anyways, um... When we got there, uh, almost immediately, uh, it was winter, and uh, it had been sunny when we left my house, but we got there, and a blizzard just erupted out of nowhere, and snow started dumping down. I mean, dumping to the point that there were 19 inches of snow on the ground by the next morning. Um, it snowed really hard, and uh, 
you know, we climbed up to the thumb and it sits atop of like this 200 foot rubble pile. And I got up there and, you know, I sat down to check things out, which is what I normally do when I take hikes to pretty places with my dogs. I sit down and check things out. And the dogs are the same routine. They always like, they come over and they, they lick my hand. They establish their connection with their secure base and the language of psychology. And, uh, and then they run off and, you know, they'll come back 10, 15 minutes later. So I sat down and it was a really precarious perch. I'm kind of like balanced on this little, on a, on a rock, on this little cliff edge. And, you know, the thumb is really big and it's really tall above me. And I'm looking up at it going, God, I just hope that doesn't fall over. It's going to kill me. And um, the blizzard was, was, was bad and I wanted to wait out the blizzard while I was up there. It was too steep to kind of climb down. And the dogs, you know, came over and licked me and, and ran off. And uh, none of them wanted, like two of them disappeared. Uh, and two of them wouldn't go. Bucket was hiding under my legs. Another dog was hiding behind me. They were shaking. They were scared. Something was bothering them. Then Poppy kind of ran back and bashed into me, which is something they we climb in you know in the hills a lot. And you know the dogs know you don't like run into somebody on a cliff face. That's a fairly dumb thing to do. And then Igor, the bull terrier, came like he had been gone the longest. He was gone maybe two three minutes, and he came running back and literally like bowled into me and knocked me off my perch and hit bucket and we all went kind of tumbling down the slope and eventually got our feet under us and just kind of like whatever was going on up there like oh the other thing that had happened is while I was sitting there this was the really supernatural part I'm sorry I left it out um my insides like my gut started quaking it started like vibrating and then it started shivering and then it literally like it was shaking like somebody was beating a conga beat on my stomach I've never felt anything like it I have no idea what the hell it is um, and you know, it was gone, like by the time we got back down, but like, you know, as like, I got my feet back under me and I didn't look back. I just kept running. I was like, I want, whatever that is, I want nothing to do with it. And we got down to the bottom and Igor had been right beside me the whole way down. And I remember we leaped over the edge of an arroyo, uh, into, you know, or we leaped over the edge of a, of a small, like cliff is a, a wrong word, like a little cornice. And he had been right next to me as we were coming off of it. And uh, 15 feet later, he was gone. I mean, he was just gone. No, he was nowhere. And, uh, you know, I'd looked for him for two hours at that point and couldn't find him, couldn't find paw prints, couldn't find it, He just vanished and uh, went home, thought maybe went home and wasn't there. And Joy and I hiked back to the Thumb and back home. And it literally was like a 14-hour day of hiking in a blizzard looking for Igor. And um, he totally disappeared. And the next morning, we actually got a phone call from a neighbor that said he, the neighbor saw him on a cliff across the street from his house, but like a horrible night of a blizzard. Bull terriers don't have thick coats. We were sure he was freezed, frozen to death, but Igor, whatever he had encountered out there fundamentally changed him. He was never, ever the same. It actually did some damage um, to, it did a, did a lot of damage to him. It really, it messed his head up and it really spooked him. Um, but yeah, I have, I actually, uh, I got so weirded out by it, I called, uh, couldn't find a scientific explanation, so I actually started. You can, if you live in Santa Fe, you can look up shaman in the phone book. It's one of the advantages. <laughs> so I called a bunch of them, and one guy called me back, and uh, he was an interesting guy. I mean, I was actually like a Western guy, I'd been trained as a psychologist, and ended up um, eventually moving into this and training with you know some people down in the Amazon. Uh, and uh, he told me I had met a lamb spirit, and you know, I that I needed to offer it good tobacco to to pacify it, and um, and. Yes, I tried it. I would have really tried anything. That was, it was frightening. <laughs> I have to ask you, do you think your dogs believe in God? Um, 
I that's an interesting question. Uh, Descartes said they didn't have a soul. What I uh, uh, <laughs> maybe uh, it maybe is my answer to your question. I for sure we know that animals have spiritual experiences. Um, uh, awe, which is you know religious awe, is is, is kind of one of the fundamental. Uh, spiritual experiences. We know animals are capable of that. Uh, Jane Goodall writes about chimpanzees having kind of ecstatic trance dances and, and awe and, and see that. But we also, you know, when you talk about spiritual experiences to a science geek like me, um, whatever, uh, whatever we want to talk about on the spiritual side is, is one thing, but spiritual experiences we now know from the neuroscientists who have, you know, been looking at people's brains when they're in ecstatic meditation, things like that stuff I wrote about in West of Jesus. It's certain neurochemicals, it's certain neurochemical structures and things along those lines, and uh, those structures are all present in dogs, so it's per they're perfectly capable of them. So then the question is, if they're perfectly capable of having spiritual experiences, do they seek them out? And the answer to that is actually, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a number of different ways to answer the question. The short answer is yes, they do, but one of the easiest ways to look for it is um, almost every mammal on the planet practices uh, seeks intoxication. We've known this for a while. Ronald Siegel at UCLA did, did this research, and it's, it's anything. I mean, elephants will drink fermented booze from bog holes. Mong mongooses will eat, uh, what do they eat? I, I want to say they, oh, they eat uh, ergot, rye ergot, which is where, you know, LSD derives from magic mushrooms. Heroin shows up, opiates show up all over the animal kingdom and whatnot. Um, so then you have to ask yourself, you know, why do humans do hallucinogens? Because hallucinogen use shows up all over the animal kingdom. And one of the kind of standard uh, ideas that has come out of the 60s and everything else, and it's now, um, you know, being used kind of medically everywhere, is hallucinogens are phenomenal for curing what's called uh, existential anxiety, fear of death anxiety, which, you know, we've known since Ernest Becker wrote The Denial of Death back in the 70s, is, you know, one of the most potent forces. We're doing everything to deny death. And one of the reasons, you know, people take drugs is it takes, makes them feel kind of one with everything, which is the same thing you get from a spiritual experience. And if you're one with everything, well, clearly you're not going to die. So this is a standard kind of hallucinogenetic experience. And we've, we, by the way, have seen animals using hallucinogens to assuage their grieving over other dead animals, which is the other question you have to ask, ask yourself if you want to figure this out. It's, you know... If you want to know if animals have spiritual experiences, you want to ask a couple of fundamental questions. Do they seek out the, do they seek out the things that we seek out to create spiritual experiences? Yes. Do they have the same underlying biological structures? Yes. And do they have the emotional reasons for doing that? And the emotional reasons that, you know, most psych scientists believe that people seek out uh, spiritual experiences. And I don't think this is entirely correct, but I think this is all, some of it is to assuage death. Right? We we do that one of two ways. You the Western traditions. You have, you know, this thing called the soul that attaches you to, to the immortal or in Eastern traditions, well, this is an illusion. You're actually just immortal. Um, but either way, you know, these are ways of denying death and denying the fact that, that you're going to die. And the, you know, this was the human condition. Humans know, knew they were going to die and this was the problem. But we've discovered, by the way, that animals certainly know they're going to die. Many, 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 many different animals grieve for the dead, go through elaborate you know, mourning ceremonies. Chimpanzees, if a relative of a chimpanzee dies, they'll carry the body around for days. I mean, they'll dis discard it when it starts to rot, but until it starts to rot, they will, like, you know, clutch it to them. Um, dogs are the same thing. You see grieving rituals in dogs, and you see these animals. So you, we know these animals know they're going to die. 
I mean, God, I'm really just tearing this answer up. I can't get it out. No, go ahead. Go right ahead. Um, we, we know that the, these animals. We know the animals are, are, are aware of their own mortality, and we know that you know they use intoxicating drugs as part of the grief process. So, you know, there's a pretty you know. Do animals believe in God? I can't say one way or another. Do they have spiritual experiences? By every human definition of the term, yes. We both. Animals and humans all consider the same things holy, as far as I can tell. So there's a good reason to have a beer-drinking dog. There is a good reason to have a beer-drinking dog, if you want it. And the, you know, the, do the dog is probably happy. Animals do like intoxication. In fact, animals who can't get their... There are certain species when they can't get their drug of choice. They'll do things like... And they'll do obvious things that humans do, like spin in circles to make themselves dizzy and get them high that way. But I, I want to say it's an otter that will hit itself in the head with a rock if it can't get its favorite drug of choice just to alter its consciousness. And there are, by the way, profound evolutionary reasons on why you want to alter your consciousness um, besides just kind of denying death. There, there, there are good problem-solving reasons for it. It helps to solve problems be totally out of your head sometimes. Um, and animals take advantage of this too, and so do humans. Um, but, you know, it's pretty funny also. <laughs> I've been speaking with Stephen Kotler. His new book is A Small Furry Prayer. Thank you for joining me, Stephen. Thank you for having me back. I love it here. We'll look forward to your next book, too. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.